before I actually start. Um, this morning, Heather was leading us in prayer, pre-service prayer, and we were talking about the many-membered body, and um, there was a very good illustration of that happening on stage this morning. Um, Brian was kind of praying into how you know, we don't all have to have all the muscles need to be strengthened in the same way we can help each other out. And um, so I just think that was that was a really beautiful thing that happened. And this the spirit is moving and I'm just excited to see what else happens this morning. So. Yeah, thank you for that, God. Uh, so my name is Jillian, if I haven't met you yet, um, I. Me and my husband, Scott, and our three kids are just, we are so blessed to be part of this community. And something I have learned for over the past few years is I get a lot from and really enjoy learning about scripture. And so I am just blessed and humbled to be able to share that with you. So thank you for allowing me to do this. Uh, we are working through the Gospel of Matthew. And for anyone who's been tracking with us, we are working through it slowly and thoroughly and you can follow along with Matthew for probably for the next seven or so years with us we'll just have to see how it goes but it's there is so much goodness in the gospel of Matthew and it is beautifully arranged and beautifully written and so it's worthwhile taking this much time in it um if you haven't been following through I'm just going to give you a real quick run through of what what Jesus's ministry and Matthew's looked like so far. So we started with uh, his proclamation of what the kingdom of God looks like and that it is here. And that came through his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, he talked about who the kingdom is for and the beautiful broken mess of humanity that he has come uh, to save and to bring into relationship with him. And they're very countercultural teachings, both for the culture at large, but also within Israel. And they're very challenging, and, but he does give very practical instructions on like how to actually live in the kingdom. And then for the next couple chapters, uh, this is what Tom has pre preached through this uh, fall, is Jesus goes about and he just brings the kingdom. He demonstrates what it looks like. And we talked about that through these five miracles of grace. And they are unearned gifts Jesus starts handing out to just show the depth and the width of his heart for redemption. And they're beautiful stories, stories about healing, stories about bringing people into the family of God. And then there was these two miracles of chaos is what they're called. The first one was the storm. Um, when Jesus calls the storm and it has the disciples asking, what kind of man is this? He's been bringing about the kingdom, but then he demonstrates this power that has never been seen before. And then he, um, there's a story that Tom talked us through last week about the demoniacs and Jesus sending the demons away. And interestingly enough, they were the first ones in the gospel to say who Jesus actually was, which was son of God. And a shift has happened in the Gospel of Matthew at this point after, after those two stories. And that brings us to, the, to today's story that Scott just read for us. Um, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. And it's a really, really cool story. We're actually 
probably more familiar with the versions of it in either Luke or Mark's gospel. This is the story where um, Jesus is preaching and the crowds are surrounding the house and the people can't get in. So they bring their friend up on the roof and they tear the roof off to lower uh, this man in to Jesus so that he can heal him. It's like, as a Sunday school teacher, that's the one you're always kind of secretly hoping you get to teach and then you get your pamphlet and you're teaching revelations. So uh, shout out to this week's Sunday school teachers who definitely have the harder texts to <laughs> unpack. Um, yeah, so so that's this story. And like I said, there's been a, there's a shift that's happened here. And it's all about the authority of God. We're going to come, we're coming into another set of five miracles. And Jesus actually is doing the same thing he was in the miracles of grace. He's going to come, he's going to heal, he's going to bring people into the kingdom. But something has happened. And that something is that the people around him now know who he is. There is an undeniable truth of this is, this is not a teacher. This is not even a prophet. This is God among us. And so in order to actually receive the free grace, the gift he's giving them, there has to be a shift in the hearts of the people around him. And that's, that's what the story is about. And that's what this teaching is going to be about. Um, before we actually dive into the text, I want to play a little word association game with us. Now, I, you don't need to shout out answers. This is, I mean, you can if you want, John, but um, <laughs> you don't need to shout out answers, but, but it's, there are some uncomfortable things in this story. They're uncomfortable to us in the culture we live in, and they're uncomfortable to us as human beings. And so it's just kind of important to, to kind of see where we are holding on to misguided truths um, or even outright lies. And um, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to tell you these three words. These are the three parts of this message that are going to help us unpack this story. And just take note of how you feel about them. Sin, authority, and freedom. When we're opening our Bibles, we're asking God to reveal something of himself to us. And it's just important to see where we are layering ourselves on top of him. These are loaded words. They, they're complex. Um, and when we're coming to a familiar story like this one, we, we can kind of read it and think, oh, I already know the answers. I already know... I know who the bad guys are in the story, those Pharisees who, um, you know, and Jesus is calling out them being bullies and he's, he's awesome and he just deals with them with wit and he's so cool and we love him for it. But, but there's more to it than that going on. And um, I think to get the most out of it, we're going to have to let ourselves get a little uncomfortable so that we can maybe see how uncomfortable this situation might have been for the people actually involved in it. Yeah, so I'm just gonna pray and then we're gonna dive in. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. And 
as Tom reminded me this week, we have one message and it is you and it is the only message we need. And so I just pray that you reveal what you want us to know about you. Let us put aside everything we think we know and just focus on you and who you are. Amen. All right, Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. So Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. That's, that is a wonderful thing to hear from Jesus. But what would we expect Jesus to say in this scenario? We come to him with a broken body and his response is, your sins are forgiven. And I think, you know, we're in, we're in church. We kind of have this idea of, oh, we're supposed to say, that's, that's all we need, right? Like this is, our sins are forgiven. Things are great. But let's just put ourselves in the position of this paralyzed man for a minute. Things are so bad in his broken body that his friends have ripped the roof off someone's house to get him down in front of Jesus. And we know that Jesus is going to heal his body, but it's not what he says first. First, he says that his sins are forgiven. Why? Why does Jesus offer forgiveness before the physical healing? And to get at this, I think we need to take a closer look at sin and in particular, the association that seems to be happening between sin and um, his paralysis, his, the, the physical illness in this man's body. So sin is undoubtedly an uncomfortable word. Um, it is not one we use in, in a society in general right now. We don't have a... Our culture does not have a moral authority that we can all agree on. And so talking about sin outside of a place like this is, is uncomfortable and um, seen as closed-minded. And even within church communities, sin has been a weaponized word. And um, I think that needs to be acknowledged. And we need to give that over to Jesus and what he's actually going to be teaching us about that. So it's uncomfortable. Uh, the story has a correlation between sin and illness. And as a society, we have a very disjointed view of our whole person. We have an elevated view of our intellect and um, the mind. And, you know, if we can just all educate properly, then all the problems of the world will go away, like this kind of thing. And that is not the biblical view. But on top of that, in this story, there are cultural misconceptions that the people in that room have about sin too. We have a very disjointed view of our bodies and our wholeness, but there were misguided views at that point in time that had a very direct correlation um, between sin and illness. And one of those things, it comes out in John 9, um, the scripture I'm thinking of. So Jesus' disciples see a blind man and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, 
you're asking the wrong question. The disciples are looking at sin in a narrow and concrete way, but biblically, sin is actually very broad. Uh, And to explore it, we're going to actually take a look at the Genesis narrative. So we're going to go back, very first page of our Bible, and just kind of explore what the Bible says about sin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He created human beings in his likeness to rule and to reign and to live in perfect unity with God, with each other, and with creation creation itself. They are naked and unashamed, both in their own bodies and in the presence of God and one another, and God calls it all good. Shalom is the word to describe God's good creation. Shalom is peace and wholeness, harmony among parts. It describes the way things are supposed to be. Sin is what breaks shalom. It breaks that wholeness, that perfect creation that God created in the first place. In the Genesis narrative, trouble begins when Adam and Eve start to doubt God, when they don't trust him to provide for them, and so they take for themselves what was always freely given. That's what sin is. It is any attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. So sin enters the world and it starts to break down the four main relationships God gifted us with. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our our physical bodies, with each other, and with creation or the world around us. Before sin entered the world, we have perfect relationship in all of these four areas. Sin enters, shalom is broken, and now all of these are broken. So first, our relationship with God. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, God comes searching for them, and he calls out to them to find that his children are hiding from him. They are separated from his presence and ashamed of what they've done. That's the broken relationship with God. Hiding is what happens. And then our broken relationship with ourselves, where before they were naked and unashamed, Adam and Eve become aware of their own nakedness. The perfect relationship with their own body and mind and spirit is now colored by shame. Our bodies, which were designed perfectly, are now broken. They age, they become ill, and they eventually die. Then there's our relationship with each other. Adam and and Eve, once perfect counterparts, equal but different partners in ruling, begin to blame each other, and hostility enters their marriage and it grows among their children. And then finally, the world. The very ground becomes cursed, where once it produced food, now we toil in it. Later in the biblical story, the authors tell us that the earth itself absorbs our sin until the blood cries out from the ground. Because of our sin, we have to give up our given authority over creation. So through these four broken relationships, sin has worked its way into everything. It's in every relationship, every system we interact with, and in every body. The Psalms, a lot of which were written by David, have a really um, clear connection between sin and the body. And 
and David has an understanding of what sin does in him. So I just want to read a little bit from Psalm 32, verse 1 and 4. Blessed is the one whose transgressions, sorry, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as, the, as in the heat of summer. And then he, he goes on, there's countless Psalms where he talks about things. Psalm 51, another Psalm of confession, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. So he's talking about there, there's a physical element to this. The Psalms are pointing out to us that sin becomes embodied. It's in everything, it's unavoidable, it's in our bodies. And when we choose to engage with it, it, it sinks deeper into us. And we, we actually do know this. If we think about our own experiences with guilt or with shame, like you know that feeling of guilt that you just like feel it in your gut. Or when you have chosen to, like when you've done something and your actions have contributed to harm and, and you feel it like in anxiety. Like we, we do in, know these connections and yet a lot of the time we choose to not acknowledge that they exist. Yeah. But there's not a direct correlation like the disciples, right? Um, it's not, I sin, therefore I am paralyzed. That's not what's happening here and which is very important to point out. Um, but I just, I love when Jesus says his response to the disciples when they ask that, and like, you're asking the wrong question. And so what is the right question to ask in that point? And I would say it is this, what can God do in and through this brokenness? What can Jesus do? Because Emmanuel, God with us, has come to dwell with us for a reason. The end of our Genesis narrative that I was talking us through ends with Adam and Eve leaving Eden because of the sin, but they do not go alone. The biblical story is not one of a compromising God, but it is a God of pursuing love. And that pursuing love is personified in Jesus. So good. Yeah. Okay. We're done talking about sin, kind of, but <laughs> on to our other really fun word of the day, authority. What, I guess? Okay, at this point in Matthew's gospel, a huge controversy starts. We can read this, and like I said, we already know the ending. We know what's going on. This would have been a world-shattering declaration that happened to the people experiencing this in real life. Jesus forgives, he, he just straight out says it, your sins are forgiven, and he says it with an authority, not I will pray for you so that your sins are forgiven, not you should go to the temple, which is where they were supposed to go to receive forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. There are actually legitimate concerns from the Bible teachers in the story at this point in time. For all they know, this, it, it is unfounded yeah. what Jesus is proclaiming here. So forgiveness at that point in time, uh, it involved a process. So 
you have done something wrong, you're aware of it, there are psalms and prayers that you say, but forgiveness itself and the knowing of forgiveness, the assurance of forgiveness was never a private thing, it was a very public thing. So people, you would go to the temple where the priests would sacrifice an animal on your behalf. And so you would be standing there and you would actually see something die because of the harm that you've done in the world. It's a very visceral experience, an experiential experience of what your sin does and the atonement that needs to be made for it. So this was not actually seen as oppressive and it was not even legalistic in this time. We, we hear these stories and we just, it sounds ridiculous to us, but for these people, they would have left there with knowledge that they have been forgiven. That was a gift, right? Knowing that you're forgiven is a gift. So now Jesus is announcing you're, you are forgiven and the implications are that of, is that that entire thing that happened at the temple is no longer necessary anymore. So that, the thing that set Israel apart was that they had a way to be holy so that God could dwell with them. And Jesus is saying that's not necessary. So it's like, it's no wonder they were scandalized. This was a huge, huge deal. This is so much more than Jesus being witty and cool and like calling out the bullies. This is about a human being claiming to have the authority of God. And like I said, this was an unfounded claim for the Bible teachers at the time, but for us who've been tracking with Matthew, it's not unfounded. We talked about those four relationships that were broken when sin entered the world, when shalom was broken, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with creation. And through his ministry, Jesus has been systematically claiming authority over those relationships. Um, our relationship with each other. Through the Sermon on the Mount and his uh, acts of grace that bring the outsider in, Jesus is claiming authority over the brokenness that we have between each other. Our, through our relationship with ourselves, the healing of our bodies that he has been doing, walking around the countryside, healing people's bodies, that is a, taking authority over that broken relationship. And also, um, yeah, sorry, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> then the, uh, the broken relationship over creation. When he calmed the storm and the disciples saw this and they had this reaction, what kind of human is this? That was a claiming of his authority over creation, that he could do that, set him apart from any other human being. This, is, this story is Jesus making that final claim of authority. Through claiming our sin, he is taking authority over our broken relationship with God. He does not lower the standard of holiness. He never has, but he does make a way to make us holy that is not dependent on ourselves. That's very, very, very good news. So in our narrative, the Bible teachers, they're still not buying his authority. And so he says, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven 
or get up and walk? How do we fact check that we're forgiven? There was an old way of doing that, right? You would watch this animal die. The priest would say, you're forgiven. You know you're forgiven. He's doing away with that. How do we know that we're forgiven and that Jesus actually does have authority? Well, in this story, he acts in such a clear and powerful way. He just says, get up and walk. We know Jesus' authority through his acts of recreation, the restoration of shalom that we see and we experience, the renewal of all the things that were lost to sin in the first place. The responses to what happens here are really interesting. The initial response of everyone there, we read, uh, I think in this version it says awe, and a lot of other versions it'll say fear. What kind of man is this, right? It's the same reaction that the disciples had when they're in the storm. Um, a little bit later on in the Gospel of Matthew, after his death and resurrection in uh, Matthew 28, we read, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is a man with all authority. Have you ever done something wrong and been caught by an authority? A boss, law enforcement, your parent, your teacher, right? There's, there is an initial fear that happens in that. Now, can you imagine being in front of someone with all authority on heaven and earth and doing something wrong, like maybe ripping the roof off a house, for example. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this authority is in front of you. Fear is the initial reaction, and rightfully so, right? But this is where a decision needs to be made. This is where the shift happens between the miracles of grace and the miracles of freedom. Because the response doesn't stay with fear. It's now undeniable who Jesus is. He's not a teacher. He's not a prophet. He is the meeting place of heaven and earth. God walking in a human body among unclean people. There's two options. And it's really only, do you submit to the authority of Jesus or do you not? Some will not, and we will see how that plays out in the rest of the gospel. They will cling to their control, to their outward appearance of godliness. Then there are those who do. For those who choose to put their faith in his authority over all things, the result is not like a submission to any other worldly authority they've ever encountered because of what Jesus does with his authority. Jesus is not an authority who stays at a distance. He is pursuing. He comes toward those who needs them, and he offers grace. Submission to Jesus' authority brings freedom. All right, last section, freedom. The question I asked earlier, why did Jesus offer forgiveness of sins before the physical healing? The first is to undeniably establish his authority. The second is that Jesus is not content with healing 
just our presenting issues. At our community group this week, Maureen prayed this. We were, we were praying for each other and she says, Jesus only heals fully, no loose ends. Well, wow. That was a beautiful prayer and it's so true. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Jesus will not heal only to have us enslaved by something else. I, to kind of demonstrate what I was thinking about with this, with the presenting issues, I actually want to share a little bit of testimony here. Um, we prayed about a year ago for me up here, uh, healing of my wrists. So at that time, I was having a lot of pain. Um, and then it was resulting in a lot of fatigue. I could not, barely like turn pages of a book and I couldn't hold my kids. And it was just, it was a bit of a mess. Okay. So it happened to be my turn to come up that we, when we prayed for me, we laid hands on me. And it would have been amazing to say that I was healed on that day, like this miraculous healing. We would have praised God and it would have been part of my story forever. And it would have been a beautiful thing. So I stand here about a year later and I am mostly healed. And it's something we can see and it's something we can celebrate. But what you don't know is that there is so much that's been going on beneath the surface over the course of this healing. So there, I came with my presenting issue. God, I need help. I can't function. Will you heal me? But Jesus is not content with just physical healing, but full restoration. So when I am presented with pain and uncertainty, and my first response is to start Googling and self-diagnosing, and all of a sudden I'm probably dying, and Jesus wants authority over my anxieties, my future tripping, and my insistence to self-diagnose rather than to bring issues to him on a layer deeper here. When my injuries lead me to misguided identity crises, who actually am I if I can't hold a paintbrush or bake bread or mountain bike? Jesus wants authority over that. When my deep insecurities about never being enough are brought painfully to the surface because I am physically incapable of making myself enough, Jesus wants authority over that. Just like he wants authority over my pride when I have to ask for help and my impatience with my husband because he can't read my mind. He wants authority over these things. He wants it over all of my sin, all of the ways I try to meet my own deep needs by my own resources. Simply healing my injury would not actually heal me of all of the things that keep me from living life to the full. I would love to say that over the course of a year, I found freedom in all of these areas of my life, but that would not be true. However, I have found healing and I have found growth. And there are areas of my sinful life that I have put more fully under his authority. And so day by day, slowly, I am being set free. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. 
In Romans, Paul says, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Maturity in our faith, maturity in disciples of Jesus does not mean we have less sin. It does not mean we have less to confess. It means that we are allow Jesus to get deeper into us. It means that we are we run to him when we are naked and ashamed we don't hide ourselves we let him in and the deeper he goes the more layers he can peel back yes the deeper we see our sin goes but also the deeper his grace goes and that is such good news guys in this story though there's of the paralyzed man there is still a lingering question that I had at this point while thinking this through, how do we know that we're forgiven? The short answer is faith. But there are two practices that we do a lot, we should do a lot that help us remember this. The first one many of us have already partaken in this morning, communion. It is a remember, remembering a very visceral experience. This is the body and the blood of Jesus. And we get to take, partake in that as a reminder of what he has done for us and our forgiveness of sins. And the second one that I want to focus on this morning is confession. In the story of the paralyzed man, he has to do two things. Jesus does a whole lot of things. He is claiming all authority. He is doing all the healing. He is forgiving sins. The man himself has to do two things. One is to get himself in front of Jesus and the second is to have faith that Jesus will do, can and will do something in and through his brokenness. And that is what confession is. So, yeah. <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis has a really, really clear and beautiful depiction of what confession is. Um, and I'm just going to read it over us. So Eustace was, is the character in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He's a boy and he was deceived out of his innocence and forced to wear this dragon skin. And it's something he can't get off, though he tries. He tries to peel it off time and again. It's causing him pain. It's causing him discomfort. And he's approached by Aslan, Lewis's depiction of Jesus. So I'm just going to read now and it it he's talking about the lion and it led me a long way into the mountains there was a garden trees and fruit and everything in the middle of it there was a well the water was as clear as anything and i thought if i could get in there and bathe it would ease the pain in my leg but the lion told me i must undress first so i started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place but just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. When he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. This is a depiction of confession. The story in Matthew is a depiction of confession. We need to get ourselves in front of Jesus. They talk about the man's faith. Jesus sees his faith. But remember what we learned about a few weeks ago. The strength of our faith is not dependent on us. It is dependent on who we put our faith in. So we can come with just a little bit of faith. In fact, we can ask others on our behalf to get us in front of Jesus. The key thing is that we're there. And then we have to have faith that as we allow him to get beneath our presenting issues, to get beneath the surface, he will peel back layer by layer and he may go deep, but he will fill those places with his love and with his grace and with his healing. Mm -hmm. Confession is a gift. It may start with fear it may start with sorrow, but it ends with joy and it ends with freedom. The only freedom we can ever actually have, guys. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The ancient Greek word for healing in this sentence, this, this verse, it means wholeness. And it's the same word that is used throughout the Gospels when Jesus does miraculous healings. It's the same word as when he heals a paralyzed man and when he brings sight to the blind. It's wholeness. We want to see God move in power in this place and in this town and in this world, and we will continue to contend for miraculous healings. But forgiveness of sins is miraculous healing. Yeah. And we get to participate in it every day, every time we put ourselves in front of Jesus and allow him to undress us. And so we're going to practice confession this morning. Uh, I'm going to put up a prayer and we're going to read it together. And then we will recite uh, a verse from one of David's psalms. This is David's words that are inviting God to undress him, to see beneath, asking God to seek, search him, and know him. And so we're going to read the prayer together, and then if you're comfortable, 
why don't you open your hands up and we'll say the verse together that's on the screen and then practice confession allow God to search you allow bring your presenting issues in front of him and allow him to get to the root of them and allow him to fill you with forgiveness and this can be a quiet private confession um, but our leadership team is here and they are willing and would love to pray for you if something comes up that you would like additional prayer for the other thing we would like to do though too is we would love to just kind of circulate around and declare um, an assurance of pardon over you and so if you're comfortable with that when you are done your time of confession just raise your hand and then we can do that and help each other out all right that's all i have for today but i think let's spend some good time here in confession okay so why don't we no. Yeah, sure. And then confession? Or no, do all together. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Do this and then it's not. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. All right, so let's say this together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the freedom you have given us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. But we confess today that we often live like slaves. Instead of living like you delight in us, we avoid you in shame and guilt. Instead of receiving your favor as a gift, we try to earn it with our efforts. Instead of accepting your freedom, we prefer our chains. Instead of doing your purposes, we cling to our short-sighted agendas. Forgive us, embrace us, cleanse us, heal us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Jesus. Be God. I know.